You're listening to Mike T. Property Secrets Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, opinions, and insights on property investment and secrets to success in real estate affairs. Introducing your host, Mike T. of Mike T. Real Estate. Learn the secrets of some of real estate's top agents. It's property made easy with Mike T. Property Secrets. Hi guys, Mike T here. Uh, once again, welcome to my show. Today I've got a real special guest. His name is Mr. John Hellaby. He's from the Check My House Price Lead Generation uh, System. Uh, good day, John. Good day, Mike. How are you, mate? Good, champ. Very good. Uh, John, I wanted to ask you if you could uh, let. Uh, I know you've been on a bit of a journey um, with your um, uh, being real estate. And now you, you've got Check My House Price. But can you tell our listeners? What is it that you do in your business and how do you help uh, people, especially people like me? <laughs> yeah, look, absolutely. So I guess what we do, we we link homeowners with real estate agents. So homeowners who are looking to sell, who, who are potentially considering selling, you know, we offer them a free information service with that, that free property eval. And, of course, we use real estate agents to complete that eval. Um, we work with one agent per postcode. So... And, and we've got a fairly stringent, I guess, qualification process these days when we bring agents on board. We want to know that they're, they're good relationship agents so that, you know, when we're recommending homeowners to them, they're agents who are going to look after them long term, you know, who have good follow-up systems in place and, and who are decent people as well, which, as you know, Mike, you know, yep. in this day and age, a good agent's a good person as well. And, and that's something that we really look for. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, very, very true. Uh uh, John, can, most of my listeners don't know you, so I wanted to ask if you could just tell a bit of background about yourself growing up. You know, I even like to find out things like the school you went to, the kids you hung around with, and a bit of your story to where you are today. Look, uh, yeah, my, my story is um, it's a bit of a whirlwind, to be honest with you, Mike. Um, you, you know, you say, what, what school did you go to? And my initial reaction was to say, well, which one of the 13 that I went to? Um, oh, I think I went to something like seven or eight different primary schools. You know, life life wasn't settled. Um, my father was an invest, investigative journalist and, and he was responsible for some of the biggest uh, busts of, of white-collar criminals in New Zealand and in Australia throughout the right. 80s and the 90s. And that kind of life, like when... When you mess with people, and I'm not talking common street criminals and street thugs and that, when you mess with people who set the rules of the game, um, it's, it's not exactly a life that is calm and serene. You know, when, when you start going after these people, as Dad did, and, and he was very much like a dog with a bone, you know, it, it became like like movies. You know, the kind of Sopranos stuff that you see in the movies, and you know, these guys would would threaten family. They'd come after us in order to get a message to him. You know, one of my earliest memories was uh, I would have been probably seven or eight years old and um, mum dropped us off at school. We went into to morning class, you know, to, to pastoral care, and ten minutes later she was back in my classroom dragging me out of class, throwing me in the car, and we drove halfway across New Zealand because wow. uh, there were people there, you know, there were guys in suits photographing us with telephoto lenses across the roof of, of their car. And it it was deliberately designed to look menacing and to look threatening because they wanted to get a message to dad that, you know, they could reach his family anytime, anywhere. They knew where we were. They knew what we were doing. 
and therefore perhaps he should think twice about what he was doing. Now, I can't remember uh, if that was the, white, uh, the, the Gang of 20 investigation he did in New Zealand or if that was the Croatian crime gangs that he was doing. Um, obviously, I was very young at that stage. But, you know, that continued. That was the first 15 years of my life. You know, in Adelaide, when we moved to Adelaide, I was about uh, nine years old. We flew to Australia, flew to Perth originally, and uh, we circumnavigated Australia all by the Nullarbor Plains. So we actually we drove up the entire west coast, across the top end, down the east coast, and, and finally settled in Adelaide. And Dad's first job in Adelaide was to investigate uh, there was $3.2 billion in missing funds uh, in the State Bank of South Australia. And the thing about that is that the State Bank of South Australia, as I understand it, was underwritten by the State Government of South Australia at the time. Yep. And so because there was $3.2 billion missing, that was taxpayer money that was missing because the State, state Government under, uh, had underwritten the State Bank. And uh, so his first job was to investigate that. He published a number of different articles and features and that sort of thing on it. Um, it actually resulted in a Royal Commission inquiry. The irony was that he was the only one charged because what happened is the State Bank actually turned around and sued him to make him reveal his source, and he refused, flat-out refused. Wow. And the, the judge actually found him and told him he had to, and he said no, and the judge had found him in contempt of court. But in the lead-up to all this, to try and put pressure on Dad to make him reveal his source, you know, and keep in mind, what I'm about to give you is a snapshot of three years, you know, yep. roughly. Um, 1990, late 1990 through to about 93. And, uh, you know, I, I remember being 10 years old and someone trying to break into my bedroom window. Um, you know, and I'd race out, grab mum and dad, they'd come oh, in and God. we'd see them you know, running away. I remember, uh, you know, there'd be death threats. Mum would get a phone call and it'd be a death threat. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. We're going to kill him. We're going to go after everyone. Or there'd be phone calls where they'd just start reading off information about us kids, you know, name, date, uh, date of birth, what school we were at, what, what sports we played, all this sort of stuff. And it was all designed to intimidate. And that culminated in um, a, a kidnap attempt on me. Rogue, look, I can't flat out say that it was the state bank or the state government or anything like that because there's not any proof, right? There, there's no proof. All we can say is that the information we were given at the time, it is believed that rogue elements of the state bank or the state government of South Australia uh, arranged for me to be kidnapped from school uh, as a message. Now, the kidnap attempt failed. Uh, and, and to be honest, it, it wasn't designed to actually succeed. Uh, it was designed to send a message and, and a threat to, to, you know, say to dad, wow. hey, it's time you play ball. So, you know, this, this, was, this was the first 15 years of my life was, you know, dad was an invest, investigating somebody and somebody didn't want him to. Um, so, you know, during Adelaide, we lived with round-the-clock armed security guards. Um, you know, I had maybe one or two close friends, but as you can imagine, that kind of life doesn't – it doesn't create a social environment. Yeah, I was going to um, say. You know, I, I remember, you know, one of the main points in Adelaide, one of, the, one of the most sobering moments in my life is I would have been about 11 or 12 years old, and I'm standing on the cliffs at, uh, at Mana Beach, and um, – you know, there's a, a private security team there. There's a Murdoch's ANSET security team had been flown in to, to take over and to, to protect us, essentially. And they're there fingerprinting all us kids, myself and my two sisters. And uh, we're being fingerprinted and, and photographed, Polaroid photographs. And I was 11, 12 years old, and I remember knowing that the reason that they were doing that was so that they could identify our bodies if it turned up in a ditch somewhere. Um, and it was an incredibly sobering moment. It was... It oh, was 
one of those sort of pivotal moments in a young man's life, I guess. And, uh, you know, it, eventually the, the state bank, you know, dad's dad wasn't exonerated. He was charged with contempt of court. Um, but his investigations led to a royal commission that found the bank, the head of the bank was at fault. A guy by the name of Tim Marcus Clark was at fault. He got fined, I believe, $81 million. Uh, he paid off about a million of it and declared bankruptcy. Um, the 3.2 billion, very, very little of it was ever actually recovered. You know, it was, I think it ended up getting right, written off. And I'm not 100% sure on that. You know, keep in mind my age at the time. Um, you know, but that, that left me very much scarred. Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I spent the next 21 years battling PTSD, uh, undiagnosed. Nobody, nobody actually yep. diagnosed me. I was depression, anxiety, um, full of rage, you know, a young man like that, full of rage. He'd, he'd learned firsthand that the rules that we're taught don't apply. You know, as we grow up, the rules of nicety in society don't actually apply if the people in power decide they don't. Um, and so I spent a lot of time very, very angry growing up. Uh, through my teen years, you know, through my early 20s and that sort of thing. Um, I was going to say, John, um, sounds like you had a real challenging, uh, grueling past, but how did you um, listen to you? How did you overcome all, overcome all that? I very nearly didn't. To be honest with you, Mike, I very nearly didn't. I got, I got lucky. I mean, I, I say I got lucky, but, you know, one of the things mum and dad drilled into me from a very early age was I don't quit. Yep. You know, my name is Helody, you never give up. Um, and, you know, when when we would crash and burn and we would have rough times and, and emotionally and mentally, mum would always be there to say, we just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so that's what I did. I kept putting one foot in front of the other. I always figured if I was moving forward that, I, you know, I'd get there eventually. Yep. And... I guess that, I mean, that's the basis of it for me, but that alone wasn't enough. You know, um, mm-hmm. had a lot of really good people that would come through my life and, and offer bits of wisdom. Um, you know, there would be personal development. My, my old principal was a real estate agent, a guy by the name of Jason Savage. He put me on to things like the science of getting rich. He put me on to motivational speakers, to guys like Glenn Twiddle, Kirk Ashley, um, you know, Brian Tracy, you know, and, and these guys that, specialize in getting your head right yep. and those guys gave me tools that helped me keep going yep you know and get through the daily grind to get through what i called the pit um it wasn't enough to to beat the pit but it was enough to keep me going if that makes sense yes um and, oh, we, and then, we all get a bit like that i've as you know i've had chats with you too yeah. um you know yeah. you, you have your ups and downs but it's all about getting your you know, getting your head right and your, your mindset and yeah. exactly what you're saying. Always well, I, I think, you know, the big thing is if you've got the tools, you can keep going, but exactly. you still need to fix the root. Like, you you know, the tools help you manage the symptoms. The tools help you even cure the symptoms at times. But if you don't cure the problem, then the symptoms just reoccur and manifest in different ways. Yep. Um, and so that's that's what happened for me. Um, it would have been, actually, we're only talking 18 months, nearly two years ago, actually, now, Mike. Yep. Uh, it was November 14, 2014. Um, there was a, a very small financial issue, like almost inconsequential, and uh, it was a trigger for me, and, and I, I sort of I lost, my, lost my, my biscuits a bit about it. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it. That was that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I decided that day that I was going to take my own life. Um, oh no! And I stood up. I stood up on the end of my bed, or not on the bed. Sorry, I was sitting on the end of my bed at the time. I was reading this letter, and I stood up, and I went to go and do it. And I had enough. I had enough tramadol from a, a surgery that I had on my knee. I had enough tramadol to uh, to basically kill an elephant. Wow. You know? Um. So that's I, that was the decision I was I was going to OD, and but then I created two other plans as to in case the OD didn't work or something. Yep. You know, I had two other plans because the worst thought that was going through my head was that if I fail at this, then I am truly absolutely a failure in life and, and yeah. in everything. And so there was no way I was going to fail at it. And um, as I stood up to walk to the kitchen to go and, and get the drugs, my body paralyzed. I collapsed. I, I fell face first on my floor. Uh, I lay there. It was a very pretty picture, mate. I lay there for about 55, 56 minutes in a pool of, of sort of snot and drool and, you know, tears oh, and everything gosh. like that. And... Um, as I lay there, I, uh, you know, I was, it was really quite weird. It was, there was, there was a battle going on inside my head. Um, you know, I was thinking about my sons. I've got two boys. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking about them and I was justifying my decision that they would actually be better off without me because I was that damaged. I was that far gone and that damaged oh. that I was only going to damage them. And uh, sorry, Mike. Um, you're right. Yeah, so I was, I was justifying that. I was I was justifying my life away, and mm. um, you know my my ex my I, I was divorced at that point, and I was justifying that the kids would be better off. You know that side of things had money because I I was financially struggling at that point, and you know they'd be able to cater for everything, um, and and every part of my life, you know every part of my life, I was justifying away because I kept coming back to the point of. You know, what am I fighting for? I've been fighting for 21 years against against PTSD, depression, anxiety and all this. What am I fighting for? If, you know, what, another day like this? Am I I'm fighting to survive for another day like this, another month, another year? You know, I've got nothing left. And and that was it. And it would have been a couple of minutes after I'd collapsed that I got a text message. And I wasn't able to check it till, till much later. But as I started to get feeling back in my body, I sort of put myself up and, and sat down um, and, and sat on, uh, my bed. My legs were still weak. I, I couldn't trust my body. So, and again, coming back to that, I did not want to fail at this. No matter what I did, yep. I didn't want to screw this up, right? Um, and so I sat on my bed waiting for sort of feeling and control to come back into my body. And I checked the text message and it was from my ex-wife and it was about my youngest son. Uh, and he'd left his hat. Apparently he'd lost his hat and she was blaming me and saying it was at my house. And I got really ticked off about it. Like I was really ticked off. I marched through the house. I was tearing cupboards apart, looking for yeah. this hat, right? And I couldn't find it. I've gone back to my kid lose his damn head if it wasn't screwed on, you know? I was really annoyed. I sat back down on my bed and I went, hang on a second. If something so small can make me so annoyed, can make me so angry, yeah. maybe I'm not done here. Because if I feel so strongly about something so small, then maybe I'm not done here. And so I resolved uh, to sleep on it. And if I still felt that way in the morning, I would go and see my GP, who'd been my GP for about 15 years. And um, I, I would lay it out in front of me. And I made the decision that if I was going to quit, if I was going to leave this life, then I was going to do it knowing that I'd given absolutely everything I had in the tank. And I'd given that one last shot, you know, that, that one last go. And uh, so I went to my GP 
and I sat with him and I said, uh, I said, mate, look, you got to fix me. Fix me or I'm dead. There's, there's no middle ground here. There's no two ways about so it. it came about got, enough's enough. You've had enough. Enough's enough, mate. I said, look, this is the situation. This is where I was this time yesterday. These were my three plans to take my own life. Yeah. So somebody does something and fixes me or I'm dead. And, Maybe you didn't uh, take your life, that, John. Hey? I'm glad you didn't take your life, bro. <laughs> Thanks, mate. You know what? I am too, very much so. Yeah. You know, like through this chat, we'll, we'll start talking about where I am now and, and we're talking two years on and, and how much things have changed. But, yeah. you know, at that time, there, there was the light, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. You know, all I was fighting for was to fight for another day deep in the darkest pit you can imagine. Um, and, and that was, you know, that, that was, that was it. That's all I had to look forward to. Um, but thankfully, you know, he, he set me up with a psych who did a proper psych eval, you know, I'd always been fawned off and palmed off and by psychs yep. and, or they tried to put me in a box, you know, like with a yep. textbook sort of diagnosis, yeah. which use how, how do you textbook a kid who had rogue elements of a state government try and kidnap him? You know, like that doesn't happen every day. It's not, it's, it's not something you can pigeonhole. Um, but the psych, you know, to his credit, it was amazing. And, and it was quite funny because look, I'm, I'm not a religious person. Um, yep. You know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't call myself Christian or, you know, Muslim or anything like that or Buddhist. I'm, I'm none of those sort of things. But I was sitting in a Christian mental wellness center, yep. which, you know, I, I found quite ironic. Um, and this guy was sitting there and, and he was plotting, you know, he plots out on like a dartboards type thing as we're going through and he's asking me questions. He's doing the psychobal. And when we finished, he sits back, right? And he, he sits back and he looks at it and he goes, and then suddenly looks up and looks around and realizes what he'd said, right? It was completely involuntary that he's just under his breath. He's just sworn to himself. And that was the moment that I knew I was going to beat it. That was the moment that I knew I was going to survive because somebody else saw it. You know, it wasn't me being weak. It wasn't me blowing things up in my mind or making things more than what they were. Somebody else saw it mm. and acknowledged that it was real. And he then went on to tell me that uh, I would have been, I was 33 years old at the time. And he went on to tell me that not many make it to 30 with what I'd been carrying, with the load that I'd been carrying wow. most of their life well before that. Um, and it was in that moment that I knew, you know, that all the rhetoric about those who, who um, you know, battle depression, anxiety, PTSD, all that, are some of the strongest people on the planet and all that, you know, it, I actually started to believe that. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if most didn't make it, through what I'd been through and had, had taken their own lives by the time they hit 30. And here I was at 33, you know, and I was still asking for help. Then clearly what I was facing was real and it was something bigger, you know, than, than um, what anybody I'd ever tried to talk to about in my past, you know, they hadn't realized they had a grasp. So I knew from that moment on I was going to get better. Um, I went back to my GP with the psych eval. He said, there's, there's an experimental therapy that we can try. And uh, I said to him, I said, look, if it kills 50% of the patients, it's still a better chance than what I've got, you know, by myself. Yeah. Turned out it was hypnotherapy. So thankfully, you know, it wasn't potentially fatal. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was amazing. You know, once we knew what was wrong, once I'd, I'd actually gotten a good psych and we'd been able to figure out what was wrong. Yeah. So that so was nearly four years ago now. Hey, so this was, 
so yeah, November 14, 2014. So nearly two years ago, that was that was my that was my moment. That was my my fork in the road, if you will. Yeah, um, take a new direction. In the new direction, and uh, then I started treatment in. I believe it was the March or the April 2015. Yep. And uh, four sessions, mate. Four sessions of hypnotherapy and 21 years of PTSD had not been cured but had been treated. And all that's been left for me to do is is every time I come across, um, you know, a part of my life where the code that my brain had written to deal with that part of my life uh, was had been written by, you know, my brain under the influence of PTSD, mm-hmm. I just... Recognize it these days. I acknowledge it, and then I rewrite the code as I want it to be written. Um, and you know that's an ongoing process. There are always going to be situations that I haven't been in since the code was originally written, and I just have to recognize it and rewrite it. Um, but you know that's yeah. That, I mean, you want to know who am I in a nutshell? And we've read. Yeah, I'll well, gee, that was. Uh, <laughs> a bit but that's well, it. I mate. want to that's ask you a couple of questions. Going on to a bit of um, you know that that's been a pretty tough uh, story, but. The good thing about it is you come through it, come through it, and you know, I, you know, I've only known you for probably what about six or so months, but yeah, about that. And I've, you know, I've got to see that I wouldn't have known that you'd been in that, you know, that you had that process. So it was good to see, but because I see you as a successful, you know, businessman as an entrepreneur now, and that's within a short time and less than two years. Yeah. It's really good to see. Yeah. I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. What's your uh, favorite holiday destination? Oh, you know what? If you'd asked me that 12 months ago, yeah. I probably would have told you Vanuatu. Yeah. Um, and I've never been there. Like to me, one of the one of the big things, you know, going through treatment, I I'll, I'll probably keep coming back to it. It's such a big part of my life. But one of the things when I was going through treatment is, like, when I get out of this, I'm going to Vanuatu, right? Yeah. And but I didn't. I didn't go to Vanuatu. The opportunity came up to go to the states because my mum lived sort of half the year in Minnesota and half the year here. Okay. And so I came up to go to the States to, to take my kids and to do Vegas and Disneyland and that sort of thing. So I jumped a plane and I went to, to Minnesota and we spent some time in Minnesota with, with my mum and, and my stepdad. And um, then we went from Minnesota down to, to Vegas, down to LA and took the boys to Disneyland, which was amazing. But uh, the shopping in Minnesota is amazing. Like, Top brand name stuff for dirt, dirt cheap. You know, if you know where to go, know where to shop. The outlet shopping's amazing. And I've got to say, so far, like, I love going to the States for a shopping holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's pretty cool. All right, what about um, uh, favourite movie? Oh, Lucky Number 11. That one's easy. Lucky Number 11. Uh, I think it was marketed here in Australia as The Wrong Man. Um, okay. But I've always preferred the original European title, which was Lucky Number Eleven. It's got Lucy Liu, Bruce Willis, Josh yeah, Hartnett, yeah. Um, uh, Morgan Freeman, Ben Sir Ben Kingsley. Like it's an amazing cast, and it's an awesome story. And um, I, I love movies where I don't see the end coming. And yep. that one I loved. You know, Kansas City Shuffle all the way. All right, cool. Uh, style of music that you listen to. Oh, you know, yeah, it's it's a huge style. Uh, rock, love my rock and roll, particularly the older stuff. You know, Offspring, Metallica, Green Spoon, um, Good Charlotte. Back when they were still a band, uh, yeah. Blink One Eight Two. 
but then as well, like the stuff that's on, on Nova, the, the more modern stuff, there's a lot of stuff I like there. Um, I hated, hated Justin Bieber for years. Yeah. Hated him. And then, uh, his latest song or one of his latest songs, you know, that, that one, um, You're not the only one. <laughs> oh, you know, you know, his latest one. It's, uh, if, if, if you, love, know, if you love the way you look so much, why don't you go and love yourself or something? Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. And, and I went, well, this is Bieber. This is an awesome song. And then my partner told me that it's written by Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. And I'm like, ah, that explains it. Oh. So I love a bit of Ed Sheeran as well. Yeah, he's good. Uh, favorite yeah. quote? You got a favorite quote? Yeah, I do actually. Albert Einstein's one of my, my favorite people throughout history. Yep. Um, and his quote, I think perfectly sums up my life. I'm, I'm actually high functioning ASD. My youngest son's high functioning ASD. And so this, this quote is, you know, it's very, very true to my heart, rings very true with me and my, my life experience at school and things like that. And it's, um, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its entire life believing it's stupid. Cool. Uh, all right. Um, can you give uh, my listeners, uh, three valuable lessons uh, about life? Never give up. Number one, never give up. It doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter how hard you're, you're striving. Um, it doesn't matter how hard, you know, the, the, whatever it is that you're facing is. Keep putting one foot in front of the other and never give up. That'll be the first one. Um, you know, if, no matter what you want to do, no matter what your dream is, do it. And, and there's a great quote from Kirik Ashley, which is, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And everything I, you know, everything for me always comes back to putting that one foot in front of the other. The second you take the first step, you learn enough in that first step to know what the second step needs to be. And it's just everything in life is step by step. So if you go step by step, you will get there. Now there might be a million steps between here and your dream. Mm. That's okay. Take a million steps. And trust that you're going to learn what the next step is every way, you know, every time you take the current step. Um, and always, always be learning, you know, always be learning, always. And I don't necessarily mean textbook learning. I'm not a great textbook learner. You know, the books I read are, are, are fiction. Um, but even in fiction, you can learn something, you know, strategies that are played out in fiction, the, the way people communicate in fiction, all that. You can still be learning from that. You know, learn from every interaction you have. Learn from every failure in particular. And I think that's that's a huge one. Yes. You know, you're never a failure until you quit. Yep. Um, and no, nothing that you ever do, if, if you're not successful, it's not it's not a failure, it's a lesson. So learn from it because you paid for that lesson. So, you you know, get your money's worth. Um, 100%. And, and I think just one last thing for you, Mike, on, on that one. There's a great quote from The Science of Getting Rich. By Wallace D. Waddles that I love, and I'll, I'll absolutely butcher this quote, but the meaning is is the most important, and that is if if you do work on something and you strive towards something, and for some inexplicable reason it falls over at the last minute, do not despair, because there's a reason it fell over, and that reason is that something much bigger and better is just around the corner. Correct. And if the first thing had succeeded, you wouldn't be in a position to take advantage of the second thing, and that second thing is so much better for you. So just have faith that. You know, the reason something didn't work out is, you know, because there's something better coming. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I believe that totally, uh, John, because I've told you a bit about my story. I've had a, you know, quite a few um, things that didn't work out for me. 
um, in the past, and and here I am today. I'm absolutely loving it, living the dream. Fantastic. Oh, um, you're doing an awesome job. I love watching what you're doing, bud. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks, champ. Um, now, just quickly a bit about how you got into um, Check My House Price, because I know you did real estate for, uh, I can't remember yeah. how many years. Uh, just uh, I was in real estate for about four years. Your model. Yeah, sure. Look, what I, had, I was in real estate for about four years, um, and, and I started real estate in 2009, so just after the GFC hit. Great career decision, that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I still sold property. I, I did pretty well, actually, in that time. But I hate cold calling and I hate door knocking, you know, and, and one of the reasons I hate them is because I hate people doing them to me. Yep. Um, so I've, I've never been I've never been comfortable doing something that, uh, I wouldn't want people to do to me. And so my, my old boss, Jason, and I, we, we had, a, uh, I guess, a bit of a bet where he wanted me to cold call and door knock. I didn't want to. And he said, well, if you, if you find a better way, then you can do that. Um, otherwise, you're cold calling and door knocking. And I'd had about 20 years' experience in IT at this stage, um, or a bit under 20 at that point, actually. And, um, you know, I'd done development, I'd done IT tech support and everything like that. So I put that to use and I built check my house price. And we then letterbox dropped and in the first week it, it developed uh, or generated 14 leads and uh, he, Jason went, yeah, all right, you win. You can use that one. And so that, that sort cool. of found a check my house oh. price, that was probably August 2010. Um, when did you start check my house price? August 2010. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. So, and and that was just for me. Um, and and uh, 2011, early to mid 2011. Um, but the model and the site that we'd built, you know, was was August 2010. Um, we launched it nationwide. Uh, I believe it was May 2000 2010. Um, and it just went, yeah, it went gangbusters. In fact, in the first three days, we had 300 plus agents sign up, and it melted the servers. Um, wow. Yeah, we, GT actually had, had said, yeah, look, you'll promote it. So we started off as a free model. You know, we, we started off as that free sort of model. Our whole focus was always to, to look after agents because, you know, there were so many, there, there was a lot of lead generators out there, but their business models were incredibly predatory. You know, they wanted 20% of comm. They wanted, you know, huge long-term oh, yeah, 12 commitments. No, and they did nothing. In their favor. It was, it doesn't matter if they generate leads or not. You've still got to pay them and you're locked in and all this kind of crazy stuff. And, um, it just seemed ridiculous. Um, and so because we were agents, you know, we wanted to build something that was, was fair for agents and, and we've held that value all the way through. Um, you know, our agents are, are our, our first port of call there. You know, we want to look after them. We know if we look after agents, we'll attract good agents and good agents will look after our homeowners. You know, it's yeah, the old nah. Richard Brown theory. You know, if, if if your customer service starts with your employees, then your customers will always be happy because they'll always be treated brilliantly by your staff. You know? Oh, exactly. And so, I like how you said earlier that um, you, you're selective when you when the people, agents want to sign up. Well, that, that's, that's right. You know? So, uh, excellent. Now, if I could, I'll always like to ask this next question um, just quickly. If... Um, I call it the time travel. If you could take you back 20 years, what would you be doing? And tell your, tell your old self, what would you do? You know what? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm torn with that question, Mike, because, I mean, you guys now know my story. Um, 
and there's part of me that wants to go back and grab my 14-year-old self and just extricate him out of that situation, just get him out, you know. But if I did that, would I be where I am right now? Would I have, you know, a gorgeous partner who's an amazing person as, you know, would I would I be building this business that, that's just ticking off milestone after milestone? Would I be helping agents and, and developing contacts and friendships and, and all these things with amazing people around me? True. Or would I have gone and taken a nine-to-five job and led a, a, an ordinary life, you know, earning a paycheck, making somebody else money? Um, like, yeah, I... I don't know, Mike. I don't. I, I don't know if I can answer that question. There's part of me wants to tell you I'd go back and I'd beat the living snot out of all those people that <laughs> you know that, that caused all that pain for me. Uh, yeah. There's part of me that says I wouldn't go back. Yeah, um, no, true. Actually, you know what? You know what? I'd 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 just find a way to let myself know to invest in Google shares. I think that's yeah. what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't we all? Oh, that's so true. All right, just um, what matters the most to you now? Who do you admire the most and what matters the most to you now? I think what matters to me most now are my kids. You know. um, How old are they? They're they're nine and seven, two boys. I I always always wanted two boys two years apart. They're one year, 364 days apart. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, my, my kids... And, you know, living life, I, I feel like the first 34 years of my life were lived on somebody else's terms. You know, I, it, it didn't matter that after, after the state bank stuff, Dad retired from investigative journalism. Um, and so the threat to us was no longer real, you know. Mm-hmm. But the damage that had been done meant that I was still living as though I was under threat. You know, all my coding in my head and, you know, it was all as though I was under threat. Um, you know, I had to analyze every person who walked past me in the street, see if they were a threat and everything like that, you know. So I, I, I genuinely feel like the first 34 years of my life were lived on somebody else's terms. And for me, it's it's about my family and it's about experiencing life. It's about making up for the years that I lost yep. and and ensuring that, you know, when I, when I do go to my deathbed that I, I can look back and and genuinely um, genuinely smile at my life and and feel like I've lived a good life. Um, and who do I admire the most? You know that's that's a tough call. That's well, a who's tough your call. hero? Who's my hero? Um, yeah, probably my dad. Probably my dad. He he uh, he passed away in two thousand nine. Okay. But you know, when you when you think about it, when you think about what it took, the spine that it took to remain true to your values, when somebody bigger, more powerful, with vastly more money and, and more connections, more control than yourself, tried to kidnap your son to make you give up your source and to still stand there and say, no, I won't do it. To have that kind of spine, to have that kind of belief in yourself and your values and to stay true to yourself when absolutely tested under fire like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think my old man has to be my hero just for that alone. Um, regardless of all the rest and, and all the, 
the stuff that happened around that, you know, when you think about that, I think about that now. I don't know if I've got that spine. You know, if somebody threatened my kid, yeah. I, would, I, I don't know. I'd either go after them with everything I had or I'd do everything I could to protect my kid, even sacrificing my values to protect my kid. Mm. Um, you know, so to, to have that kind of spine, to have that kind of belief in oneself and to be true to yourself when absolutely tested like that, you know, yeah, that's got to be my hero for sure. Oh, cool. Like HDG would say, that's real strong. <laughs> Mate, that's, I don't know, what's stronger than steel? That's titanium. Yeah. That's, that's you know, my old man, yeah, he didn't budge for anybody. Um, stubborn wow. as hell, but uh, he didn't budge for anybody, and he stayed true to himself right up till the day he died. Wow. Um, look, a great story, uh, John. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Um, and how, how can now... Listeners uh, that may be interested to reach reach you, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, look, they can find me, uh, John at cmhp.com.au um, or, you know, connect with me on Facebook, uh, John Hallaby on, on Facebook um, and reach out. Always happy to have a chat. As you can probably gather, Mike, I'll talk your ear off if you like. Yeah, I know. And uh, <laughs> web address? Uh, check my house prices is checkmyhouseprice.com.au. Fantastic. All right, great, uh, John, and I'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Likewise, buddy. That was Mike's Key Property Secrets Podcast, your source for real estate and success secrets. Tune in next time to hear more great interviews. Don't forget to leave a comment, rate the show, and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Till next time.